The following program includes descriptions of graphic and sexually explicit violence. This show may not be suitable for those affected by such descriptions or for young listeners. Parental discretion is advised. Previously on Stranglers. When the jury came back, I knew immediately what the verdict was because they wouldn't look at me and they wouldn't look at Albert. Albert DeSalvo was found guilty of the Green Man crimes. The judge sentenced him to life. The judge ordered him not to prison, but to be returned to Bridgewater, which is about the worst place in Massachusetts to be, or at least it was in the 60s. It is questionable now that Albert DeSalvo, the man who says he is responsible for all this, will ever stand trial as the Boston Strangler. But it is clear that he will never be set free again. Women in Boston were safe, or so they thought. At dawn on February 24, 1967, just a month after DeSalvo was sentenced, a security guard at Bridgewater was making his rounds. He peered into DeSalvo's room. It was dark, and he couldn't hear any breathing. Something was very wrong. This is New England. New England. From Stitcher and Northern Light Productions, in partnership with Investigation Discovery, this is Stranglers. I'm Portland Helmick. Anna Slesser. Ida Erda. Miss Jane Sullivan, 67, was found. They were strangled, usually with a piece of their own clothing. Articles of silk or satin. He asked me not to tell his mother. Hold it. I think you're going to like this picture. Episode 10 Fame and Consequences. Now, he wrote this one page. When you see the writing, you can see how it starts to, to slant. Dear, Dear Mr. Mr. Gargan, sorry, but I feel I've had it. I just don't understand the law or people. I truly thought that I was doing the right thing by telling the truth each day that goes by. Albert DeSalvo had escaped Bridgewater, and he'd left a note for the hospital superintendent, Charles Gargan. I felt maybe I'd, I'd clear up a few important matters. I had hoped of trying to help others with problems such as mine. And, and he writes to the superintendent that, you know, I'm not going to hurt anyone. I just wish to die outside these walls. I know they will have orders to shoot me on sight. I'm only sorry the people in our world don't even want to try and understand what makes a person what he was. I don't feel I could hurt a fly. I can't understand myself, so how can I expect you or... Anyone to understand what made me be everything I hate. I almost can't believe it was me. It's dark in my room. Signed, Albert H. DeSalvo. Albert DeSalvo had taken two inmates with him. In the middle of an icy February night, the three men fixed their blankets to look like sleeping bodies. They unlocked their cells with a key they'd stolen and they clambered down an elevator shaft, bringing with them a pair of scissors and a pillowcase filled with candy bars. They hoisted themselves over a 20-foot wall and crept about 100 yards through the snow to the edge of Bridgewater property. 
Albert's brothers, Richard and Joe, pick them up in Joe's white Pontiac. They drop the two other men off in Sullivan Square, and then Albert DeSalvo set off on his own. Fear, shock, and a blast at officials for lack of security were expressed by Boston-area women in reaction to the escape of strangler Albert H. DeSalvo. You know, like, because he was behind bars, it was, it was like he's behind bars and we're safer. And when he escaped, it was um, terrifying. Terrifying. This woman asked us not to use her name, but she says the escape felt like the worst kind of deja vu. He was on the loose again. And once again, for me, all the fear came back that he'd come and get me. Acting Boston Police Commissioner Herbert F. Maloney issued orders that until further notice, the Homicide Bureau would remain open 24 hours a day. Authorities scrambled. Detective Phil Di Natale drove nearly 200 miles around the area trying to track DeSalvo. The FBI got in touch with Canada and Mexico, warning that DeSalvo might be looking to get a nose job with plans to murder his surgeon. But DeSalvo was not heading to Canada or Mexico. He was much closer to home. I sneaked into a house where a woman was vacuuming the floor. I stayed behind a couch for two hours, and she never knew I was there. But I didn't take advantage of her. I just took some food and left. Albert DeSalvo was hiding in Lynn, about 10 miles north of the city. The Strangler's second victim, Helen Blake, was from Lynn. Then I went into another house where a couple was watching TV. And I sneaked into the cellar and stayed there. DeSalvo made a bed in the cellar, and he listened to news about himself on the radio. Are you confident that you're going to have him back in custody uh, within a very short time? Well, at this point, what time is it? It's 2 o'clock in the morning. You know, I'll tell you right now, I'm so tired. I'm not confident of anything. All I can assure you is we're giving it 100% maximum effort. That night, DeSalvo's fellow escapees were caught and taken back to Bridgewater. But DeSalvo remained free. Somebody put a price on his head, dead or alive. The record American newspaper had offered a $5,000 reward. Bailey was worried about vigilantes, so he doubled the amount with a key condition. F. Lee Bailey said Friday night he is offering a $10,000 reward for the capture, alive, of self-proclaimed Boston strangler Albert DeSalvo. Bailey a well-known defense lawyer who had DeSalvo as a client, expressed fear that, quote, some trigger-happy citizen may shoot him down. DeSalvo was getting anxious about the same thing, and he knew the police were closing in. He left his hiding spot in the cellar. Good afternoon, Simon June Farms. How can I help you? Is it possible to speak to Al? Sure, do you mind holding? Thanks. Hello. Hi there, is this Al? Yes. 
Al Simon's family has owned and operated Simon's Uniform Store since 1885. The store sells police, postal, and fire uniforms. Al Simon's was 34 in 1967. It was February 25th, and I know the temperature was in the teens. It was bitterly cold. There was very few customers at all. And, uh, he, you know, he walked in and went up to my father, who was sitting down, and he asked my father to use the telephone, and my father said, if it's a local call, okay. And he then said, it's an emergency. I want to call F. Lee. And when you heard F. Lee, what did you think? By F. Lee Bailey. I mean, F. Lee Bailey is quite famous. And you thought, if he's saying F. Lee... As soon as he said that, we turned around. I mean, his picture was on the, you know, in the front of the newspaper, which was on the counter right there. You know, we had all looked at the newspaper. <sighs> so, you know, we all saw his picture on the front page of the paper. While DeSalvo talked to Bailey, Simon sent an employee to the back where there was another phone line. The employee called the police. Simons grabbed a billy club and hid it under his shirt. That does mean that you had some concern. No, I wasn't concerned one bit. Some years earlier, I was a military policeman in occupation of Berlin, and I had extensive training with a club. And I remember saying to myself, he's not sticking an island stalking around my neck. Simons offered DeSalvo a cup of coffee, and they got to talking. And I just sort of remember asking him, uh, did you strangle all those 13 women? And he answered, I honestly don't know. I know I did some of them. He said, I don't know, but I did some of them? He answered, yeah, I honestly honestly don't know, know, but I know I did some of them. When the policeman did come running in and they directed him back towards us and he asked him, well, you know, what's your name? And he said, Albert DeSalvo. And the policeman turned him around and handcuffed him and took him away. Boston breathed another sigh of relief. Albert DeSalvo was off the streets again, but he would not be going back to Bridgewater. That afternoon, a judge ordered DeSalvo be sent to a facility with much tighter security, Walpole State Prison. As the police led DeSalvo out of the courtroom, he spotted Detective Fildi Natali in the crowd. And he calls my dad over and starts to speak with him. John D. Natali. And Albert asked my father, could you do me a favor? Could you get my address book and my glasses that were left where I was arrested? If I don't have my address book, I can't write letters to anybody. John D. Natali says Phil was happy to do what DeSalvo asked. In all the years he'd worked the case, Phil had never actually spoken with DeSalvo. Phil welcomed any chance to understand the Strangler better. And this is a letter from... It's a letter from Al to my dad. It's just a page and a half. Hi, Hi, Phil. Phil. Gee, thanks very much. I truly appreciate your doing this favor for me. I had expected to see you in court again last week. Phil, I bet if I sneeze in court this week, the DA will seek indictments against me, charging me with air pollution. And then at that point, they started to communicate with each other. And By communicate, what do you mean, the letters? Well, my dad would go out there and visit him on a fairly regular basis, and, uh, and Albert would write my dad letters. Phil, have you ever stopped to think how crazy and unreal this case seems to be at times? It's so strange. 
All this person wants to do is tell the truth with the hope of getting some kind of an understanding as to why he became what he was for the sake of his children. He does not want to be free, ever. But still, the state will not come to any agreement within reason. So neither will he. I bet you never thought things would turn out as they have, like me writing to you. Yours truly always, Albert H. DeSalvo. P.S. Keep the faith. The end is near. Di Natale would tell his son he saw a big opportunity here. He was still working the case. He was still working the case. He wanted there to be an ending to this. And he tried to convince the Salvo to waive his right to use those confessions and, and try him. But when you say waive his right to use the confessions, I mean, hadn't it all sort of been tied up by that point? Well, it was never a trial for the stranglings. No, I know. But the trial, he had been charged for the green man crimes. He's already in prison. So what's your dad trying to, when you, when you said that he's trying to get him to waive the confessions, what do well, you mean? He wanted then for the strangling cases to be tried. He didn't want it to end with, well, we all know DeSalvo was the strangler because we have his confessions and, okay, that's the end of the story. Everybody move on. Nothing to see here, folks. He didn't feel that way. He felt that there should be a trial. Albert told Phil the crimes were a constant burden to him and that perhaps only Phil understood what he was going through. Hi, Phil. Received your letter. Yes, it does help me a great deal to have someone to write to other than my own family. Phil, I don't think you'll ever forget this case, but I would like to. I'm sick of it. It's so unreal and yet so true. I can understand other people's feelings, and in their place, I would feel the same as they feel. Yet I know something they don't know or understand, and that's me, Albert. That's it for now. Have a nice Father's Day. I would give anything to hear from my children. Just a Just Father's, a Father's Day, Day card, card anything. anything. Oh, well, oh well, maybe in time, maybe in time if I'm still around. Yours truly always. Yours truly always, Albert DeSalvo. Albert DeSalvo. What did he say about him? Did he like him? Like, did he like a certain, like a certain part of him? I mean, he did. I mean, he, because they kind of had a lot in common. Really? Well, like they what? Were, well, they were both good with their hands. Uh, and Albert writes that. And, you know, he writes in his letters, you know, Phil, nobody knows me like, the, like you do. You know, at one point, it's like he said, I haven't had any, too many people in, in my life that I can call my friend. So I think my dad gave him an understanding ear. Uh, like, did he have some compassion for him in the end? Or did, they, did he see him as a, a, I don't know a vicious that he, I don't know that he, he was... had compassion because he still could visualize 13 dead bodies and that this man had done that. So I don't know that it would be compassion as much as he wanted to bring an ending to the story. He didn't want it to be left the way it was. But when Di Natale's superiors found out he was corresponding with DeSalvo, they called him in for a meeting. They wanted him to stop digging into this. They wanted this done. The case was done. They didn't want any more 
contacts with DeSalvo. They didn't want any more. Look, you know, he's willing to waive his right to the confessions. He, they didn't want any of it. They were, they were happy with what they had. And they shut him down. The law enforcement community of Boston was not about to break open the Strangler investigation. So Phil Di Natale ended his correspondence as ordered. But he wasn't quite done with the case. Mr. Carr, I'm Detective Di Natale. I have some questions for you. After the break, Phil Di Natale leaves the police behind and follows the Strangler all the way to Hollywood. Now, back to Stranglers. In 1965, before Albert DeSalvo was tried and convicted on the Green Man crimes, before he was even done confessing to the Stranglings, one man was writing his story into legend. Oh, it's tremendous. It's tremendous. I mean, uh, I have a tremendous book here. On me, on me as an individual, too. Certainly, certainly. Reporter Gerald Frank recorded this conversation with John Bottomley, head of the Strangler Task Force. Frank tells Bottomley how the book he's writing on the Boston Strangler will unfold and which characters will look like heroes. First third of the book, of course, is, is Sherry, Donovan, and so on, because the police department. Then the AG's office takes over, and a man called John Bottomley from eminent domain comes in and takes over. And uh, a lot of things start happening. Fur flies in all directions, and then one suspect after another comes up, and, and it goes on and on. And in the last chapter is finally the guy. I mean, uh-huh. Albert himself and, and the case. I mean, it, I, I, it can't be helped. I didn't you invent it me that a way. celebrity, Joe. I had lunch at the Globe on Friday off the record with the top of their editorial. Remember, Gerald Frank is talking to John Bottomley while the investigation is still active. You're the integral, you're the, the one thread going through the book you see at all times. You will uh, be interested to know that the Globe people think that the first person who gets the, gets the, uh, you know, a really good work out on it will probably make a ruddy fortune. Frank published his book in 1966, and it was a runaway hit. People following the Green Man trial could read about DeSalvo in their bedrooms at night. Frank's book captured the fear that had gripped Boston and the desperation of the police and the task force to make the city safe again. The book became the defining document of the case in a way because Gerald Frank had bought exclusive rights to Albert DeSalvo's story. Here's Effley Bailey. Gerald Frank came to me and said, look, I'm just terrified that this thing is going to unfold. Your guy turns out to be the guy. The cops tell me that he probably is. And somebody writes a book and mine dies on the vine because the sequel will mean a lot more than the original. And so if you could tell me that Albert won't publish anything or have another author publish anything for six to nine months, I'd be willing to give DeSalvo 15% of my royalties. And uh, that deal was struck, and Gerald Frank remained good to his word for as long as his book was out there selling, and it sold very well. The book sold nearly a million copies in its first two years. 
As we mentioned, DeSalvo's family had to sue Bailey before they got any of the 15% cut that was promised them. The DeSalvo family settled for $48,000. Gerald Frank had a gangbuster book on his hands, and that meant a chance at real fame and fortune. This is the story of the self-confessed Boston Strangler, based on Gerald Frank's startling bestseller. 20th Century Fox bought the film rights and promised the world the truth. It has been filmed where the actual happenings made shocking headlines around the world. 20th Century Fox was pulling out all the stops. Warren Beatty and Ryan O'Neill reportedly fought over the DeSalvo role, but it was eventually given to Tony Curtis. And the studio rained cash on people connected to The Strangler. Ermgard DeSalvo, Albert's ex-wife, got $25,000 to allow the names of their children to be used in the film. Edward Brooke, the former attorney general and senator at the time, took $20,000. John Bottomley, the head of the task force, got $29,000 to consult on the film. Set up a strangler bureau. I'm not even remotely qualified for this kind of thing. You want the stranglings to go on? That's not fair. That's Henry Fonda playing Bottomley. And a certain lead detective also got the chance of a lifetime. My dad was approached to be part of the movie and to be the technical advisor for Police Matters. John DiNatale says Hollywood came knocking right at the same time his father's conversation with DeSalvo was shut down. The studio offered Phil $1,000 a week, three times what he made as a police officer. He went to the commissioner and said, I'd like to get a leave of absence for six months. And they said no. So he, he resigned. He decided he was going to take that chance, and uh, he signed the contract. Why would someone who wants to be a cop so badly for whom that is the most important thing resign, do you think? No, that's a good question. I think he felt that initially that this was going to be a good way for him to continue to get the real story out there. But then, you this know... This is Hollywood. Yeah, he didn't realize that, you know... What really happened was, was, was not even going to be remotely close to what you saw in that movie. I mean, he wasn't happy about it, but hey, they paid him $1,000 a week for 26 weeks. And my mother took, I think, about 20 of it, paid off the mortgage on our little house in West Roxbury. Whether his dad liked the movie or not, John Natale says the whole experience was a thrill. You know, I was in high school, and there's my dad. He's, he's in Hollywood, and... You know, there's his name on the screen, and George Kennedy is playing his part. Good morning. I'm Detective DiNatale. Detective, I'm simply delighted to meet you. And this is Sergeant McAfee. Kennedy had just won an Oscar for Cool Hand Luke. You know a girl named Chloe? I don't know any hookers. I didn't say she was a hooker. You broke two dates with her last week. My sister's, you know, having lunch with Tony Curtis and George Kennedy, and my mother's out in Hollywood for a bunch of weeks, and my aunt came to take care of us while my mother was there. The Boston Strangler debuted in theaters in October 1968 and did well. The movie grossed about $18 million, which would be $138 million in today's money. The movie was a hit. But it was also an important moment in the larger history of the case. 
The film, based on Gerald Frank's book, projected what would become the popular and lasting narrative of the Boston Strangler. Singular. The film does depict a variety of suspects, all of them based on men the real task force considered, and all of them displaying some degree of outward craziness. You've been looking at my case history. They say I have messianic delusion. I've never heard anything in my life except myself. Anyone who strangles a woman can't be all bad. Stop it, David. I'm sick, you know. The suspects are dismissed with the efficiency of a Hollywood script. And then Dina Tolley and Bottomley close in, as does the camera, on one suspect, Albert DeSalvo, played by Tony Curtis. I'm God. I'm going to check out a furnace. I left when it happened. Now I am. Tony Curtis's DeSalvo is a family man who's gentle with his daughter. Try to be back by six. Dinner will be ready. And commits his stranglings in a kind of unconscious haze. I mean, there was, uh, oh, it was, uh, it was someone, someone inside of me. The story we see is the same Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde story that F. Lee Bailey presented to the world. DeSalvo as a human puzzle box, as a later reviewer put it horrified as he pushes through the fog of his own amnesia. I'm trying. No, you're not. Go on. Face it. Where are you? What did you do after you left the job? Come on, look at it. Have some guts for once. In the movie, under questioning from John Bottomley, DeSalvo comes to a moment of horrible self-recognition. <laughs> The movie ends in silence. Albert stands alone in the corner of a white, padded room. His face is confused and scared. These words appear on the screen. Albert DeSalvo, presently imprisoned in Walpole, Mass., has never been indicted or tried for the Boston Stranglings. This film has ended, but the responsibility of society for the early recognition of the violent among us has yet to begin. Effley Bailey isn't depicted in the movie, but his theory seems to drive it. DeSalvo committed the stranglings, all of them, but he couldn't help himself. And not only that, society had a chance to stop him and failed. But some reviewers weren't buying it. The New York Times called the movie an incredible collapse of taste, judgment, and decency. And Roger Ebert said the movie was not just bad, it was irresponsible. There have been lots of movies about murders, but very few about real murders, using real names while they are still a daily memory for the living. The problem here is that real events are being offered as entertainment. Diane and Mary Sullivan were more than just sisters. They were best friends. Mary Sullivan had been killed just four years before. When Diane saw the movie, she felt disgusted. She told her son, This big Hollywood star playing such a fraud. I thought to myself, DeSalvo must be loving this. 
coming up. Far from the glitz and glamour of Hollywood, the curtain comes down on Albert DeSalvo. I'm trying to get things as clear in my mind as I'm able to concerning what I have to do very soon. Now, back to Stranglers. The man who once stoutly proclaimed he was the Boston Strangler has complained that nobody likes him anymore. DeSalvo testified that members of his family and friends stopped writing to him when the book was published. He said that, especially since the movie has been shown, he has lost all of his friends. Albert DeSalvo had overlooked a clause in his book contract with Gerald Frank. He would not earn one penny from the movie. He tried suing 20th Century Fox to stop the movie's release, and in the same suit he asked for a million dollars from the studio, claiming it had defamed his reputation and that of his ex-wife and children. Again, no luck. Hi, is this Ron? Yes, it is. This is Ron Duvall worked at Walpole State Prison when Albert DeSalvo was an inmate. My first position was correction officer at Walpole, and I remained there for 25 years. And did you ever have any contact with him yourself? Uh, me? With Albert? Sure. What was your impression of him? You know, he was, he was a jailhouse celebrity. He was very affable, if you will. Um, he was always polite. I always try to crack jokes and everything. I never saw him uh, in any light where he was disrespectful to any officer or anything like that. But I did know that a lot of the inmates did not like him because of this. A lot of the, the inmates didn't like him? Yes, because of this. his mannerisms and, and the way he walked around almost like he owned the place. He walked around like he owned the place? Yeah. DeSalvo had a less-than-glamorous job the six years he was imprisoned at Walpole. He served food to inmates in the infirmary. But Duval says DeSalvo also had a little side business. He had a what they called a prison avocation, where he would make jewelry trinkets. One of the things he would sell was chains, okay, for women's, you know, jewelry. He started making chokers. John Natali again you know, leather chokers that were sold in the gift store, and people would come up and buy them. The choker? That's what the, his nickname was inside the facility, was the choker. So that's sort of mocking the whole Boston Oh, yeah, now listen, there's no question. To some degree, he loved the limelight and the fact that people thought he was the Boston Strangler. DeSalvo sold necklaces with matching earrings, and sometimes included a note. What he would do is, on the back of a card, write something similar to, roses are red, violets are blue, how in the world did I ever miss you? DeSalvo spent his days working, making jewelry and talking to other inmates. One of those inmates was George Nasser, his old friend from Bridgewater, who'd been transferred to Walpole. But mostly, DeSalvo found companionship through the mail. He got letters from an assortment of strange admirers and people seeking autographs, and occasionally from children. In December 1971, an 11-year-old boy, 
whom we'll call Daniel Brady, wrote to DeSalvo. Daniel was about the age of DeSalvo's own son, and soon DeSalvo was trading letters, not just with Daniel, but with his entire family, including his mother, whom we'll call Bonnie. Dear Al, hope that everything is going well for you. Thank you so much for telling Danny about drugs in your last letter to him. We could talk until we were blue, and he might not listen, but he certainly pays attention to you. You put into words so well, and I'm sure, thanks to you, he will never take drugs. Being a parent, we can use all the help we can get. Take care of yourself, and write when you can. Bonnie. Albert and Bonnie fell in love, and their letters suggest she ended her marriage. Albert and Bonnie referred to each other as husband and wife, and to Daniel as their son. Oh, my love, holding you today was the most thrilling moment as far back as I can remember. How about you, sweets? I did a job on your neck. Had you stayed another ten minutes, it would have been very embarrassing for me. What knee action you have. (laughs) You are a doll. Honey, it has just started to thunder and rain. Wishing you and I could be together. Your man always, Al. DeSalvo's letters with Bonnie are sometimes warm and intimate, and then suddenly horrifying. In one, DeSalvo confessed in passing that he had once raped his mother-in-law while his wife Ermgard lay on the same bed, passed out on pills Albert had given her. DeSalvo didn't seem troubled by scenes like that. But there was something burdening his conscience. In the summer of 1973, he wrote this to Bonnie. Hi, my love. I'm trying to get things as clear in my mind as I'm able to concerning what I have to do very soon. You know, honey... What I told you I had to do because of my children and people like you I care so much about. I've got to be honest with myself and with everyone else around. I've got to free myself of this. So know what I'm saying, sweets. I have only but one life to live. I want to live it as a man should. Love you always. Arms around you. Al. He made a phone call to Dr. Ames Roby, the forensic psychiatrist, and asked Dr. Roby to meet him at the prison. Author Susan Kelly. According to Dr. Roby, DeSalvo was extremely frightened when he spoke to him, and it was obvious that he feared that he was going to be hurt or killed. And it became clear to Dr. Roby that Albert wanted to recant his confession to the Stranglings and tell Roby how this whole charade, I guess you could call it, had come about. Dr. Roby also told me that Albert had called a reporter to come down to Walpole to witness what he had to say. The next morning, November 25th, DeSalvo was late to his food service job. The day ship officer sent another inmate to wake him up. The inmate found him dead in his cell. 
the body of a man lying on the floor was disheveled, stabbed to death 37 times. He had on a brand new silk pajama that he always uh, wear when he went to bed. What do you know about his murder? At one point, someone came to me and said, George, I was there. I was at the hospital, and uh, I saw what happened. This is George Nasser from my conversation with him at Massachusetts Correctional Institution. At one point, Dr. Roby and others had thought Nasser might have something to do with DeSalvo's death, but there was no hard evidence. Nasser says a different inmate at Walpole gave him this account. He said, there was smoking grass. He says, and down the hall, this guy, I saw him pull a knife and stab out in the corridor. And he stabbed him right into, this, into his bedroom. He stabbed him in the corridor he first. Stabbed him in the corridor, stabbed him. So I saw him stab him. He says, and then they went. He says, and it was a drug deal. Albert had moved into the drug trade in the hospital because he had access to, you know, to drugs in the hospital ward. And the other inmates who were running the drug trade didn't like it, and they put a hit out on him. And he was stabbed, and, and he was killed as a result of it. And I talked to a guy named Ron Duval who was working at the prison the day that DeSalvo was killed and said that... Based on what I picked up, okay, mm-hmm. just, just through small talk, um, with with other inmates. It was an argument over food. An argument over food? Yes. When he would go down the kitchen to get food, sometimes he would score himself some steaks or something like that. I mean, Walpole was out of control back then. And he wouldn't share, you know. And he, he got stabbed over that? That he wasn't willing to share. That he wasn't willing to share. There was an investigation, and three inmates were put on trial. They were found not guilty. Today, we don't know if Albert DeSalvo was murdered over drugs or because he wouldn't share his food. Both explanations seem reasonable enough inside a prison like Walpole. But the timing of DeSalvo's death raises tantalizing questions for anyone who knows this case. Dr. Roby believed DeSalvo wanted to recant his confessions, or parts of them, and that he feared for his safety. Did someone murder DeSalvo to shut him up? No one has ever been able to prove that. What we do know is that people have doubted DeSalvo's guilt since the moment John Bottomley stopped his tape recorder. The circumstances around DeSalvo's death did nothing to quell that doubt. But whether his confessions were true or false or partially true, it's also important to remember DeSalvo was fame-hungry. He was a narcissist who'd almost been forgotten inside Walpole. What better way to reclaim the spotlight than to come forward with new revelations and prove all those detectives and reporters and filmmakers had fallen for a charade? The year before he died... Albert DeSalvo sent a poem to his pen pal, 11-year-old Daniel Brady. Like DeSalvo's life, the poem contains a preoccupation with fame, some outright bragging, a hint of remorse, and it ends with a question mark. The Boston Strangler, a poem by Albert DeSalvo, 
Here is the story of the Strangler, yet untold. The man who claims he murdered 13 women, young and old. The elusive Strangler, there he goes. Where his wanderlust sends him, no one knows. He struck within the light of day, leaving not one clue astray. Young and old, their lips are sealed, their secret of death never revealed. Even though he is sick in mind, he's much too clever for the police to find. To reveal his secret will bring him fame, but burden his family with unwanted shame. Today he sits in a prison cell, deep inside only a secret he can tell. People everywhere are still in doubt. Is the strangler in prison? Or roaming about? Next time on Stranglers, we look into some of the other suspects, some of whom are in prison, and some who are still roaming about. Stranglers comes from Stitcher and Northern Light Productions in partnership with Investigation Discovery. Our executive producers are Chris Bannon and Susan Gray. And the show is produced by me, Portland Helmick, with Sharon Mashihi, Ben Shapiro, Peter Clowney, the Reverend John Delore, Kate Tibbetts, and Taylor Dewicki. Special thanks to Ben Avishai, Levi Del Cavanor, and to the Harry Ransom Center Archives for access to the Gerald Frank Boston Strangler recordings. The actors who appear in this episode are Jay Leibowitz, R. Ward Duffy, Whitney Marie, Robert Creighton, Megan Cavan, Bester Cram. Original scoring is by Allison Leighton Brown. Stranglers is produced with the assistance of John D. Natale of D. Natale Detective Agency in Boston. To learn more about Detective Phil D. Natale, his sons, John and Richard, and the world of private investigation, you can read John's memoir, The Family Business, Memoirs of a Boston Private Eye, available at www.familybusinessthebook.com or Amazon. To read more about Phil's investigation of the Strangler case and view the web series and documentary showcasing his files, visit www.strangleholdthemovie.com. You can find Stranglers through a lot of the great podcasting apps, including Stitcher. If you subscribe on iTunes, please take a minute to rate and review this podcast. It helps other listeners find the show. I'm Portland Helmick. Thanks for listening. Next time on Stranglers. Decades after Mary Sullivan's murder, her family still has questions. But I said, Mom, at least they got the guy. And she looked up at me and she said, no, Casey, I don't believe they ever did. To uncover the truth, they take an extraordinary action. It was a bright fall day and the sun was shining. And there we were performing this gruesome task of digging up, you know, a woman's body, um, exhuming her. Um, to re-autopsy her. As one question is answered, new questions emerge. If he's the one, he should be prosecuted. I mean, there's no... He's gotten away with this for all these years. Yeah, we're just horrible. We just want to be sure that we've got the right guy, Pat, before we do something. That's next time on Stranglers. 